Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live to righteousness. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Before we begin our study this morning in 2 Kings chapter 4, let's bow our heads together for a few moments of prayer to ask God's guidance on our study this morning. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to turn to in times of crisis in life, in times of adversity, because we know that your word is sufficient to us in terms of telling us, giving us the information we need to know in order to live our lives to glorify you. Your word, both your written word and the living word, our Lord Jesus Christ, are completely sufficient for us in every area of life, and you are the one who supplies our every need. Now, Father, as we come to our study of your word this morning, we pray that you would guide and direct our attention, that as we study the important doctrines that are embedded within this episode of uh, 2 Kings 4, that you would help us to see how these truths impact our own thinking and our own lives, that we might think more consistently in terms of your grace, and that we might reflect your character more in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we continue our study in 2 Kings chapter 4. Now we're down to verse 8. And this is a, to remind you, this is a time in the history of the northern kingdom of Israel when the nation has been under divine discipline because of their disobedience to God. Israel had a unique relationship to God in that God had established a covenant relationship with Israel. He had called the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob out for a special purpose within his plan for the human race, that through the nation Israel, through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God would reveal his word to mankind, both in terms of the written word that came through the uh, prophets in the Old Testament, but also the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is a descendant of, of David of the Old Testament and was destined to be our Savior, the God-man who died on the cross uh, for our sins. The depiction of God's grace in the work of Christ on the cross is the ultimate example of God's grace that we have in the Scripture. Grace means to give something freely without any strings attached, without any conditions. It is something that is given on the basis of the character of the one who gives and not on the basis of the actions or circumstances of the person to whom it is given. Grace is one of those doctrines that many people have trouble with. And down through the history of Christianity, not to mention the Old Testament, it's been very difficult for individuals to really understand grace. It just it just runs against the grain of our arrogance. We always seem to think that there must be something that we do in order to manipulate, in order to encourage, in order to stimulate uh, God's grace. And in this section of Second Kings, there's an emphasis on the grace of God flowing out of his character, who he is, and that only God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Mosaic Covenant can freely give and supply the needs uh, of his people Israel. As we'll see when we get into the next chapter, God's grace is not limited to the Jews. It's also extended to the Gentiles. But in the Old Testament, that is grounded ultimately on that promise that God made to Abraham that through him all nations would be blessed. When we come to Second Kings chapter 4, verse 8, we get another illustration of God's grace. All of these different 
situations, these different vignettes that we see in the life of Elisha, focus on the character of God, every one of them, because that is the where the battle was being fought at that particular time. In every generation, there are different battles that are being fought in terms of spiritual warfare. They usually relate to the character of God in one way or another, but there are always challenges set forth by the cosmic system, ultimately engineered and directed by the uh, prince of this world, which is Satan, Lucifer, the highest angel that God ever created, who thought in his arrogance that he could compete with God and become God. And Satan is the one who is always challenging God's right to rule over uh, the planet. And so Satan, since the fall of Adam, has been the uh, de facto ruler, and so he is called the prince in the power of the air, the god of this age. He is the leader of the cosmic system uh, during the uh, time of man's time on the earth up to the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation when he comes to establish his his kingdom. So there's always these battles and these these fights that occur, and every generation there are new intellectual challenges that are raised against the word of God. Ultimately, they all come back to the same issues. They all come back to a challenge to God's grace, to his competency, but they take different forms, and Satan always seems to camouflage them in different ways in each generation. And it's important for each generation to understand where the battles are, are being fought. We often make the mistake in the church, the same mistake that uh, often military forces make. The United States Army has been a prime example of this, or the United States military has been a prime example of this for generations, and that is to fight the last war and not be aware of where the current fight is, is taking us. And that happens in the church as well. The battle at the time of Elisha was the same as it had been in in the time of his predecessor, Elijah, and that is a battle against the pagan idolatry of the fertility religion as exemplified in the worship of Baal, the Phoenician or Canaanite fertility god, and his consort, the Asherah. And ultimately, the claim was being made that life came from Baal, that Baal was the god of thunder, he's the god of rain, he's the god of fertility, as is his consort. And so by uh, reenacting sexual acts, the individuals could somehow manipulate or motivate the god Baal to give them fertility, productivity in their agricultural endeavors, bring them life, bring them uh, stability and happiness. And so all of these things were attributed to th- this false religious system and to Baal. And so what we see from the time of Elijah forward through the time of Elisha is these different acts of God where he is demonstrating to Israel, to the rebellious northern kingdom, that he, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the only source of life and happiness and fertility and and productivity. And so again and again we see these same things illustrated in these miracles. During the time of Elijah, the focus was more negative, more confrontational, as we saw in our study of the event on Mount Carmel when uh, Elijah faced off with the prophets of Baal and the Asherah and called upon God to just incinerate the altar with fire after the prophets of Baal had tried all day long to get Baal to do that. And then God instantly answered his prayer and just vaporized the altar and the sacrifice and everything in an instant. And this demonstrated that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the living God. He was alive, and he is the source of life. And this idea of life and the living God is emphasized again and again. In fact, in this in this episode, God will be referred to again as the living God, this theme of life coming from from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is emphasized in every aspect of this particular episode. This is where the lengthy episode begins in verse 8 and extends down to verse 37. 
And this is the episode usually referred to as the raising of the Shunammite woman's son after he has died. We get the background beginning in verse 8. It happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem, where there was a notable woman, and she persuaded him to eat some food. So it was, as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. Now, this is taking place in the northern kingdom. All of these episodes take place in the north, within the boundaries of the northern kingdom, which is the area that is shaded in green. There's a border area along the coast that's shaded in sort of a olive or dust-colored, khaki color, but try to distinguish that from Israel. And this is in the heart of the northern kingdom. Here's a little more, a little better map to look at. And on this map, I have placed a red dot up in the northern center area there, just above the middle of the of the screen, for to indicate the location of this village of Shunem. It is on the shoulder of Mount Moreh which has a, a significant history, especially in the book of Judges. It was near there that Deborah and Barak fought. It is near there that Gideon's 300 lapped at the water as they at the spring of Herod. And it is at that location that you have this small village of Shunem. It is about 20 miles or so due east of Megiddo, which is marked there on the map as well. Megiddo sits on the uh, Carmel Ridge about three or four miles to the south, uh, southeast of Mount Carmel itself. So this is the area where all of the activities within this particular episode take place. We see that this was Elisha's normal mode of operation was to walk around the areas of the northern kingdom, and he would teach different groups of believers in different villages. So it shows us that there was still a contingent of positive believers who wanted to worship God, wanted to worship Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and were not being intimidated by the false religious system, the pressures to worship, pressures from the culture to worship the Baalim and the Asherah. And so this one woman who's described as a notable woman, actually that doesn't quite convey the meaning of the Hebrew word. She is called a Gedolah, which has the meaning of a wealthy woman. So in the previous episode, in those seven verses, Elijah is demonstrating God's grace to an impoverished woman, a woman who was at the lowest rung of the economic scale in Israel. And in this episode, he is going to demonstrate God's grace to one of the wealthier women in Israel's culture, showing that God is not a respecter of wealth or money or position, but God's grace is equally available to all. And she is a a wealthy woman, and she is positive to God's word and to ministry, and whenever Elisha would come through that way, she would provide for him. This shows right away that she is grace-oriented. She understands the value of being taught the word by the prophet, and so she is going to do what she can to give of what God has provided for her in order to help uh, supply for the physical needs and the sustenance of the prophet of God. And so she would persuade him to stop in at the home that she shared with her husband, and that as often he was as he would go by there, she would eat. And so this had gone on for a while. We don't know how long that she had uh, been doing this. And after a while, she realized or recognized the consistent pattern here and that Elisha really needed a place to stop, a place to rest, a place to be refreshed. And so she went to her husband in verse 9 in a tremendous example of how a wife should approach the husband who is the head of the home. And even though he is not or does not show the kind of spiritual desires that she has. She, he's not as, a, as positive as she. He just seems to be rather, rather passive towards the Word of God. Nevertheless, uh, he listens to her and pays attention to her requests, and she says in verse 9, 
Look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall and let us put a bed for him there and a table and a chair and a lampstand so it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. Now, in the ancient world at this time, houses or dwelling places weren't as large or as spacious as we are used to in our culture. They were relatively, they were relatively small and they were comprised of only uh, three or four rooms. There would be one room that would be sort of involved the kitchen and the fireplace in a area where everyone would come together and then there might be a one or two other rooms that were used for the children, used for the parents for sleeping. And then at times they, they would build another room on the, on the roof. If they had uh, numerous children or if they were beginning to lack space below, then they would build an extra room on the roof of the house. Now, the roofs of the houses were flat. And so they would just build on a roof, and apparently because of the reference to the wall here, this was a house that was next to the uh, wall of the city, and so they could build a room on their roof that would be up against the wall of the city. And then this would be a place where Elisha could stop, and he could be refreshed, and he would have a place to sleep, and she would provide him with, with a place to write and a lamp, a table, a chair. And so he could have a have his own place to lodge when he was traveling. So verse 11 tells us that one day as he came there, he turned into the upper room and lay down there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, to call this Shunammite woman. So this is a response to her gracious provision of this room to him. Now, this is not a pattern, okay? There are some people who, when they go to the Old Testament, they look at something like this and try to draw a universal principle for this, that if you supply the needs of a pastor or church or prophet, then God is going to give you uh, extra special blessings. And that's not what the text is teaching. There, uh, this is not a universal principle. This is a circumstance that is unique to illustrate the principle of grace, but not in a way that shows how to manipulate God by giving in some way to support ministries. And so he calls, he sends Gehazi to call the Shunammite, the Shunammite woman before him, and when she comes before him, he does not directly address her, but he has his servant, Gehazi, address her in his place. And this is probably because he is held by in such high esteem by this woman that rather than create a circumstance that might be a little uncomfortable for her, he has his servant address her on, in his place. And so the servant then goes to her in verse 13 and communicates the message, which is uh, stated as uh, Elisha saying, Look, you've been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Is there any way in which I can provide for your needs? And, uh, for example, do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army, some other thing? And she's, she doesn't ask for anything. She says, I dwell among my, my own people. So he goes further after Gehazi communicates this. He says, well, what shall we do for her? And Gehazi tells him, well, actually she has no son. Her husband is old. And she would have been uh, old as well. And this immediately reminds us of the circumstances with Abraham and Sarah. In fact, there's a number of parallels here and some of the same vocabulary, some of the same words are used in this uh, episode that are used in the story of Abraham and Sarah as God promised to them that they would give birth to a son. And in that episode in uh, Genesis chapter chapter 17, when God came to visit came to visit uh, Abraham and Sarah and said that this time next year you would have a son. We have that same phrase, the same statement made in this particular episode. And so the recognition that she and her husband are childless, there is going to be the promise of a child. So they, in a way they represent the spiritual condition of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom is barren. The barrenness of women 
was one of the things that would result when the northern kingdom or when, the, when Israel was to go through divine discipline. That was one of the ways in which God was going to show in a very a visible physical way that he was displeased with Israel and their disobedience to him, that along with a lack of fertility in the soil, lack of fertility in agriculture, there would also be a lack of children, and there would be an increased number of women who would be unable to have children. And so God had uh, stated back in Leviticus chapter 26 that that was part of divine discipline on a nation for their disobedience to him. And so uh, this is the backdrop, and the picture of her barren womb is a picture of the barrenness of the northern kingdom uh, spiritually, and the only way that that can be reversed is by the power of God. We are all born spiritually dead. We are born spiritually barren. Every human being is born under the condemnation of sin, and there is no way that man can reverse that through his own efforts or his own energy. The only way that life can be brought from death is through the power of the Creator God. That's why the doctrine of biblical, the biblical doctrine of creation is so important, because it is only the one who can create life out of nothing that we can have a solution to spiritual death, and that is through regeneration. So all of these episodes that we read in the Old Testament that speak of God giving life, the restoration of life, for example, with the widow of Zarephath when her son died and Elijah uh, brought him back to life, and in this episode as well when her son that she will have will also die and Elisha will bring him back to life. It is a picture of the fact that only God can solve the problem of mankind's spiritual death and spiritual barrenness. Elisha then instructs Gehazi to call her and bring her to him. And in verse 16, we read that there is a promise given from God through the prophet. He says, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. Almost the same sentence, word for word, is God's promise to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 17, that there would be a child this time next year. A year would go by, and of course she has a similar reaction to Sarah, and she says, no, no, don't lie to your, uh, don't lie to your maidservant, don't tell me these things, this is an impossibility. And she's thinking of the fact that she's too old, her husband's too old, but God is the one who can bring life where there is death. God is the one who can bring happiness into our lives where there is sorrow. God is the one who can provide jobs when we have no jobs. God is the one who can, will take care of all of our problems and su- supply them, not always in the way we think he can, but he is the one who is always able to solve those problems. That is the grace of God. And I want you to note here that this was not something that she was asking God for or asking Elisha for, but God is the one who knows what our deepest desires and hopes and dreams are, and he is the only one who supplies them and can provide for them in a real way, in the way in which we truly desire. He understands what our true motivation is. Although she she resists and she does not initially believe that, Nevertheless, in verse 17, we read, But the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come, of which Elisha had told her. So the point here again is God is the one because he is omnipotent, and because he is omniscient, he is the one who is able, he has the power and the ability to do all things, and he is able to bring life where there is death. And so this whole episode is not just an an aspect of God's blessing upon this woman because of her grace orientation and because God in his in his goodness has decided to allow her to conceive and give birth to to a son, but it happens for a purpose of teaching a spiritual lesson to Israel that God and God alone is a source of life. And he is the only one who is able to bring life where there is death. 
And so he is also the only one who is able to bring blessing where there is cursing. In Israel, it was understood that to have children and even to have many children was a blessing from God. Too often in our contemporary culture, people think too rationally and overthink the whole issue of having children, and they're more concerned about how are we going to feed them and how are we going to take care of them, and and so they limit the, the birth rate. Yet in Scripture, the birth rate is never to be limited. Now, you don't want to go overboard. I know there's some flaky movement out there that thinks that, Christians should have as many children as they can possibly conceive, and I think that takes things way too far. But on the other hand, I've also heard of people who think that somehow Christians ought to be a lot more rational and overthink the whole situation and only have one or two children. But Scripture states in two places that the human race is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, once with the original creation, And then it is restated after the Noahic flood. And God hasn't said, okay, you've populated it enough, stop. That hasn't happened yet. And so that mandate is still present, and the fact that children are a blessing from God is still a reality, and we should think that way. In fact, in the Psalms where it says that blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, the idea there uses the picture of a warrior who is able to defeat an enemy because he has a quiver that is full of arrows. And so the backdrop of that is that as as believers have children and train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, then they are able to send them out into the world to be a warrior in the spiritual conflict, the angelic conflict that runs throughout the course of human history. And so the believer should have a different attitude about having children than than the world does. The world will focus on material dimensions and material aspects and financial circumstances so that the limitation is such that it can eventually kill and destroy a culture. Culture has to have a birth rate in excess of 2.1 children per family in order to survive, not to grow. So when God points out to Israel in terms of the cycles of discipline that he will bring barrenness among the women, this is a sign that that culture is being self-destructive and is dying, and a low birth rate is a sign of self-destruction. And there are, there's a low birth rate in Europe. Many of you are familiar with this. You've seen videos online that demonstrate the low birth rate in most of Europe is such that within a generation or two, European culture will not survive. Mark Stein, in his book, reports this same information, deals with this. In, In America, if it weren't for the high Hispanic birth rate, then the birth rate in America would fall below 2.1, and we would be in a dying uh, dying culture, and that is part of, I think, the trend of divine discipline. But what we see in the Islamic community is just the opposite. There is a high birth rate of, I think it's north of 5 children per household, somewhere 6 or 7, I believe, and that shows that their their culture is growing. And if in the West, if we continue to have a low birth rate, then there will, within a couple of generations, then things will change radically in Europe. Most European nations will be completely Islamic within 50 years. And America is not far behind. And part of this is because of a reversal in the thinking of many people about having children. Up until World War II, there was a very positive attitude about having children, and uh, the family's material circumstances was not a factor in how many children they would have. In other words, it wasn't self-centered. Now there's such a self-centeredness among baby boomers who want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to have all of their uh, material desires uh, satisfied as well as having children, so they limit it to, you know, 1.5 child per household. And this is a sign, uh, it's a result, I mean, the low birth rate is a result of a reversal of our value system, and so it leads to a, 
uh, self-destruction on the part of, of a culture. But in the ancient world, having children and having many children was a sign of God's blessing. And it was a thought of as something that was uh, wonderful and something that was tremendous. And it had been quite a disappointment to the Shunammite woman that she had not been able to have children. And so she now gives birth to this child, and the child begins to grow. And yet while the child is still uh, young, probably seven, eight, nine years of age, He goes out to work with his father in the fields. This is described in verses 18 and following. And while he is out there, he begins to complain of a massive headache. And he says, my head, my head. And the father says, well, take him back to his mother. And after the child had been taken back and brought to his mother, where she held him in her arms on her lap, and and, uh, he died. And this brought, of course, tremendous grief and sorrow and sadness to the mother. But rather than dwelling upon her own emotions and becoming wrapped up in them, she set those aside and kept her focus on God. So this is another tremendous illustration of her faith and trust in God rather than a focus on her circumstances. And so he dies. Now, we're not sure what he died from. It could have been uh, heat stroke, sunstroke. It could have been some other sort of malady. It could have been a cerebral hemorrhage or any number of things uh, could have brought about this. And it really doesn't matter what the cause was. The result is that he has died and her response. And so she takes him up to the prophet's chamber upstairs to where Elisha stayed, laid him out on his bed, and then she called to her husband. She doesn't inform him of the child's death. She calls to him to supply her with the means to go on her journey, to go to Elisha and to ask him to restore life to the son. And she says in verse 22, Send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys that I may run to the man of God and come back. And so he said, Well, why are you going to him today? It's neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath was the seventh day of every week, and on the Sabbath, that there was, it was a time set aside for worship. But the New Moon Festival, which is the beginning of each month, was a day that was also treated as a Sabbath. Uh, Israelites operated on a lunar calendar. They would mark the first day of the month with the New Moon phase, and they would also observe that day as a Sabbath, a time when they did not work and a time when they would uh, worship the Lord. And so she saddles her donkey, and she gives orders to the servant to move out as fast as they can and not to be distracted by anything. She obviously has kept track of where Elisha is, and so they go to Mount Carmel. This would have taken a good uh, six or seven hours at least to go 20 miles to uh, Mount Carmel. And when she found him, uh, she is going to ask him to restore life to the child. But before that... There's an interesting exchange that takes place between Elisha, who is consistently referred to in the episode as simply the man of God. And he looks up and he sees her coming, and he has no idea what this is about. God has not informed him ahead of time of this circumstance. And so he addresses his servant Gehazi and tells him to go out and find out what is, what's wrong and what the Shunammite woman is uh, concerned about. And so he uh, Gehazi goes out, he meets her, goes through the normal pleasantries. How are you doing? Is it well with you? It's okay with your husband? And he says, is it well with the child? And no, she doesn't continue, begin to just pour out her heart that he's just died. She's not bitter or angry. Uh, she responds that it is well. It's a reflection of her faith. She's not in denial. Uh, she's not somehow being divorced from reality. She knows that God can, through Elisha, can restore life to her child. And so she says it is well. And then when she comes to Elisha, who's the one who can do something about it, she runs to him and she catches him by the feet. She bows down at his feet and grabs him. And Gehazi tries to push her away, but Elisha says, no, leave her alone. I can tell that she is in deep anxiety and concern here. She's in deep distress. But the Lord has hidden it from me. He hasn't told me what is happening here. And so then she confronts him in verse 28. She said, did I ask for a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? And then he 
uh, Elisha replies to Gehazi to get ready to take his staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, don't greet him. And if anyone greets you, don't answer him. The reason is, is because in the ancient world, greetings sometime could take a, a while as you would go through all of the different pleasantries, asking about the other person's family and relations and everything. And so rather than be distracted by that, uh, Elisha tells him just to go straight to the Shunammite's uh, woman's house and not to talk to anybody else and when he arrives to put Elisha's staff on the face of the child. Now, we're not sure why he does this initially, sending his staff. The word is not the same word as the, as the rod that was used by, by Moses. So this is not talking about uh, something that was a symbol of his prophetic power or anything of that nature. It's just a walking stick that he had. And, of course, when, when Gehazi gets there, lays the staff on the child, nothing happens. He is not brought back to life. And in verse 30, we read, And the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives, notice that phrase. The issue here is that we worship a living God. We worship a living, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. He is not a dead God like all other religious systems. Buddha is in the ground. Muhammad is in the ground. Joseph Smith is in the ground. But the Lord Jesus Christ was raised physically and bodily from the dead with over 500 witnesses to attest to that. And he then ascended to heaven where he is now seated in his human body at the right hand of God the Father. And so she begs of Elisha as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, I'm not going to leave you. And so she persists. And so Elisha then uh, travels following Gehazi. Verse 32, he arrives, finds the child lying dead on the bed. There's no question about him being dead. He hasn't just uh, passed out. He is clearly and obviously dead. And then Elisha goes in and begins to pray to the Lord. Verse 33, he went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them. So he is in there with Gehazi, and he prays to the Lord. And he goes up and lays upon the child, lays down, and the Scripture says, puts his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, and stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm." Uh, the idea here is not some sort of mystical or magical way of invoking God's healing power, but that he is identifying himself with the child by lying completely on top of him, and then he continues to pray, and the child's body, life, God begins to restore life to the child. And uh, his body becomes warm, but that's as far as it goes. And verse 35 says he returned and walked back and forth in the house. And again he goes up, and now he stretches out on the child again. And the text says the child sneezed seven times. That's a guess. The word that is used there that is translated sneeze is what is called in the Latin term is a hapax legomena, which means it's a word that's only used one time in ancient Hebrew literature. We don't know what it means. We don't know. Maybe he gasped seven times. Maybe he groaned seven times. But uh, it has been uh, historically translated that he sneezed seven times, and the child then opened his eyes. So as, as air fills his lungs again and he begins to breathe, there's this uh, physical reaction that causes him to groan or moan or sneeze or something that indicates that life has returned, and the child opened his eyes. And at this point, Elisha called to his servant to call the Shunammite woman up into the upper chamber, and he instructed her then to pick up the son. So she goes in, falls at his feet, bows to the ground, and then she picked up her son and verse 37 and goes out. And that's the end of the episode. We, we're not told anything else that transpires, her expressions of gratitude to Elisha, but the point is that this is purely an expression of God's grace to her. She has done nothing to earn it or deserve it, 
she has shown that she's grace oriented in her uh, responses to to God and the way she has blessed the prophet by the way she has taken care of him. And God has in turn blessed her, but it is these blessings from God are not just there to satisfy her personal desire, that those blessings from God are there in order to teach and reinforce important spiritual principles. And the most important is that God is the one who is able to take care of and to provide for our every need. He is able to first and foremost because God is omniscient and he knows uh, our every need and he knows the desires of our heart better than we do. Second, because God is omnipotent, he is able to do that which is uh, that he desires to do. He, there is nothing that is impossible with God, and God is able to supply our every need. And then, because God is just and righteous, God is going to do the right thing in any and every situation, taking into account all of the factors that he knows in his omniscience. And again, what this depicts for us is the doctrine of the sufficiency of God's grace. And so I want to summarize this under about seven points as we close this morning. First of all, what does it mean that when we talk about the sufficiency of God's grace or the sufficiency of God's word or the sufficiency of the cross of Christ? First of all, sufficiency means that enough has been provided or given to meet a situation. There's not going to be necessarily an excess, but there's enough to get the job done, uh, enough to accomplish the task. The Greek word that is used is arkeo, which means that something is, it's enough, it's sufficient, it's adequate. Although that word adequate in English sometimes conveys the idea that it's barely enough. It's, it's, it's not quite an abundance, but, but that's not how it is conveyed in the original. It's interesting that when this verb is used in the active voice, it means that something is enough. But when it's used in the passive voice, it has the idea of a person being content or satisfied with something, that what God provides is enough, and on the other hand, we should be satisfied and content with it. Point number two, sufficiency, the word sufficient or adequate, uh, may imply to some people that something is God's grace is barely enough. It's not an overabundance. But in Scripture, there's always the focus that God's grace is more than enough. He gives us more than we require in order to uh, accomplish whatever it is that God desires for us to accomplish. Third point, the doctrine of sufficiency is always related to God's character, specifically the omni-characteristics. His omniscience, because he knows every circumstance, every situation in life, because there is nothing hidden from God, because he knows the innermost desires of our soul, God is able to supply that which we truly need, not what we think we need, but what we truly need because of his omniscience. Because of his omnipotence, God is able to do whatever is necessary to be done in order to fulfill the need. And because God is omnipresent, he is always present with us, and he is always aware of our circumstances so that he can solve each and every problem. There's no problem, there's no difficulty, there's no heartache, there's no adversity that we face that God is not fully aware of, that he wasn't fully aware of in eternity past, and that he hasn't supplied every resource God is able to provide for each and every problem. Now, Satan has always attacked the sufficiency of God, and this is where the part of the battle lies in Satan's attack and dealing with it. From the very beginning, when Satan questioned Eve, has God really said what's hidden in that is a question on the sufficiency of God's provision? Scripture says that God supplied the man and the woman in the garden with food from every tree. It was more than enough. So Satan is now questioning the sufficiency of God's provision. When he said, you can't eat from this tree, is that really right? God should have given you 
more, but he's restricting you. So there's a question of the sufficiency of God's provision. He also questions the sufficiency of God's word. When Satan asked Eve, has God really said, is this really true? So he's constantly questioning the veracity of the word of God and the message of the word of God. Is it enough? Can we really rely upon it? Don't we need to add something else to it? And then third, he questions the integrity of the plan of God and the purpose of God. And so Satan always raises these doubts. Is God's way the right way? Isn't there another way? Can't we somehow provide uh, for our own needs? Fifth point, the abundance of God's provision is illustrated in the Old Testament with his supply of manna to the Israelites as they went through the wilderness for 40 years and 40 for 40 years as he as they went through the wilderness God supplied food for them every day in the form of manna with the exception of the the Sabbath days Jesus illustrates this in the New Testament with the miracle of the loaves and the fishes the feeding of the 5000 Matthew 14, 13 to 21. And note there were uh, 12 baskets full left over. See, it's not just barely enough. It is more than enough to satisfy the need. And so these miracles, along with the miracles that we see in 2 Corinthians, are illustrations that God can always supply more than we need in order to satisfy our needs. Uh, point number six, in salvation, God's sufficiency is abundant uh, to all, he provided a, a death, a sacrifice in Jesus Christ that is sufficient for all. Every single human being can be saved by trusting in Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty for all sin. This is the doctrine of unlimited atonement as seen in 1 Timothy 2.6 and 1 Timothy 4.10. 1 Timothy 2.6 says that Christ gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And 1 Timothy 4.10 states, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe. Christ paid the penalty for everyone. No sins got dropped out. God's not going to wake up one day and go, Oops, there's a sin I didn't uh, take care of on the cross. Every sin was taken care of by Jesus Christ, so that Paul states in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. Sin has been completely paid for. The issue now is what we're going to trust for our salvation. The issue is no longer sin. Sin has been canceled. Uh, the penalty of sin, the debt of sin has been canceled on the cross. The issue now is whether we are going to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior or not. And then the doctrine of God's sufficiency ex- is that his grace extends to believers in all areas of the spiritual life, especially in testing. God is going to provide for everything that we need in every circumstance. We need to know his word, though. We need to know the promises that he has given us. We need to understand his character. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verse 8 states, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that you, always having all sufficiency, there's our word, in all things, may have in abundance for every good work. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And God said to Paul, this is the episode with the thorn in the flesh, God said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. The issue when we are doing without is to be able to demonstrate that even when we are doing without, God is providing all that we need. His, it is a demonstration of his grace and of, his, of the sufficiency of his grace and his power. So Paul concludes, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And we have wonderful promises such as 2 Peter 1.3, which states that his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And as we read earlier this morning, 
Paul states in Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God's resources are unlimited, and he is not ever going to run out, and he is going to be able to supply whatever we need to face any circumstance in life. And this is what God is showing to Israel and shows to us in these, in these episodes covered in chapters 3 through 10 in this, in the episodes with Elisha is that God's grace is sufficient. It's the same God. The dispensation might change. Some of the ways in which it's exhibited might change. But God's grace is sufficient to handle any situation that you face. The issue then is are you willing to be like the Shunammite woman and to really trust God and to trust in his promises and to wait upon the Lord to supply our needs with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for the consistent teaching in Scripture that your grace is sufficient for us. And it is very difficult for us to understand grace, that it is something that is neither earned nor deserved, that something you freely give to us, and that you have promised us in your word again and again that uh, you will provide for us, you will supply for us, you will give us everything we need in order to fulfill the plan that you have for us that we will never be without. There may be times when we lack, as Paul recognized. There may be times as we abound. But we can handle all of these circumstances, whether we are without or whether we have an abundance. We can handle all of those situations through Christ who strengthens us. So we can say with the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins so that the only issue now is whether you are willing to trust in him to accept that free gift of eternal life by believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins And if you believe that, and when you believe that, at that instant, you are regenerate, you become a new creature in Christ, and you move from spiritual death to spiritual life as surely as the Shunammite woman's son moved from from physical death to physical life. Father, we pray that anyone here who is not saved would take this opportunity to believe that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and thus see your solution for their sin problem. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study today, that we might rest more fully in your grace, understanding its sufficiency. We pray this in Christ's name.